Hi, this is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. everyone welcome to wandering dms i'm paul and i'm dan and on this episode of wandering dms we have special guest justin alexander and he's going to talk with us about adapting adventures between systems uh also his new book that's coming up so you want to be a game master as well as paul's upcoming fearful ends it's now on kickstarter all that and more today on wandering dms before we get into that i'll remind our viewers as always that at the end of the show we will be hosting our after party chat that is a live video chat with dan and i on our private discord server you can join in on that by becoming a patron at patreon.com wandering dms join at any tier and you'll get an invite to our private discord server and be able to attend the after party chat at 2 p.m eastern today so we always enjoy that a lot uh justin um before we were uh, interrupted last time uh, you, we were, you were on uh, during the start of the year when it looked like Wizards of the Coast was really throwing the whole indie gaming industry um, uh, head over heels uh, for apparently wanting to retract the open game license. And um, uh, partly thanks to Lynn Cadega's um, coverage of that, they reversed course. Now we have the, the OGL is technically available. They released stuff on Creative Commons. I think the Orc license was finalized recently. What are what? Is, how has that affected you? And what are you using for your upcoming book? Well, uh, you know that was much less happy times at the beginning of the year. I'm so happy to be back at a time when we are not <laughs> uh, facing an existential crisis to half the industry. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I think actually, like you say, like Linda Kudega's coverage, uh, collective action. Uh, really won out the day, and we managed to make our voices heard, um, all of us, back to Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro and, and got them to course correct in a way that I think is not just good for us as gamers, good for us as a hobby, good for us as an industry, but honestly, in the long run, I think it's actually in Hasbro's best interest. Um, and I think we're seeing similar collective action, like with the recent WGA strike wrapping up and what will hopefully be the SAG-AFTRA strike reaching up reaching a good resolution for creatives as well. So we're seeing these collective actions kind of have a really positive effect. Like in terms of me personally as a creator, I've got this new book coming out, So You Want to Be a Game Master, that's coming out uh, next month from Macmillan and Pastry Publishing. And in many ways, like the way this actually all wrapped up was for the best um, for me and probably the best way possible. Because not only did they reverse course and back off the open gaming license, but like you said, they also ended up releasing um, the fifth edition SRD under the Creative Commons license as well, um, which is a license that has some disadvantages compared to the OGL, but also some big advantages as well. And so in the case of my books, you want to be a game master, that's actually coming out from, I guess, the Macmillan and Page Day Publishing, an industry thing is going to be on mainstream bookshelves everywhere. But there were some questions we're having about what kind of balance did we need to strike within the text of the book? Because, for example, if you use the OGL, you can't use trademarks or indicate compatibility with like Dungeons and Dragons, for example, because that's a trademark of a signee of the license Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast. Um, so we were trying to figure out like where, what is the balance we could actually have. And once they released under the Creative Commons, which doesn't have that trademark limitation, we were able to instead use the Creative Commons for you. So, so you want to be a game master, which both allowed me to, I no longer had to make, make a hard choice between either like, referring to Dungeons and Dragons by name, or including something like, for example, we were able to go ahead and include a uh, sample adventure for first time game masters to actually use in the book, um, which was which is great from the standpoint of what the book is about and the utility that we wanted the book to have. Uh, and so, so in many ways, like it not only ended up great for everybody, it ended up great for this book as well. So that it's been a really, it's been really nice uh, compared to, like I say, last time we were chatting. Nice, nice. So to be clear, are you using you're using Creative Commons as the primary license now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. For, for yeah. so you want to be a game we're using the Creative Commons. Just the the nature of that license and the fact that it allows us to use trademarks still uh, just makes it a better fit for this particular project. 
Nice. Nice. So, you know, the first thing when I was reading it, the first thing that struck me is obviously you're using fifth edition D&D as the as the as the default rule set that you're writing examples and the example dungeon and stuff like that. But the book is to, to me surprisingly rooted in old school gaming. It's, it's really surprised to me, like r really rooted right back in the original D&D box set that you got over your shoulder on your on your bookshelf there um, mm -hmm. in terms of. Uh, really looking carefully at uh, turn-based exploration in the dungeon and tracking individual torches and what is the specific turn cycle that we're going to use back and forth in the dungeon or the wilderness. Um, there's a wandering monster check every turn, presumably. There's lost checks in the wilderness. So, do, do you is are you cognizant of like bringing that you're bringing? Like as as we want to do on our channel here, bringing older school uh, mechanics and sensibilities to current D and D gamers. Absolutely, um, I was a very early participant in the OSR, and I really do think of the OSR as being the old school Renaissance. And that Renaissance is really important because the Renaissance isn't just about like aping the old school; it is about bringing the old school into a a new and living and vibrant tradition. And I think that's really important in gaming as well. And we've seen this influence of, of looking at these old at this old school style of play um, manifest itself into a lot of what many people think of as like new school games, games like Apocalypse World and Blades in the Dark, for example, or even Jeremy Keller's Technoir are all influenced by old school play. And, and more importantly, at a more fundamental level, this idea of having uh, scenario structures that you don't just have like a map and you say, oh, that's a dungeon. No, there's like a specific way in which you prep material for a dungeon scenario, for example, and then also uh, specific ways that you can run that material at the table, how you use that prep at the table. And that's really one of the core pillars of So You Want to Be a Game Master is that it looks at these different types of scenario structures and doesn't just give like general advice about them, but really breaks it down into a step-by-step -step process. This is what you prep. And then this is how you use your prep at the table. And that will give you the foundation for being able to improvise and actively play with your players, to be actively involved at the table with your players and actively responding to the things that they're doing, rather than trying to force down a preconceived sequence of events, which is the way that when you don't have these kinds of scenario structures, you almost default into because everything else in the world as you know, is a linear medium where the writer has prepped, pre-prepped a sequence of events, what we call the plot, the plot of a movie, the plot of a graphic novel. And so there's a real temptation to like, when you're prepping your RPG notes, to prep the things that the PCs will do. But the problem with that kind of prep is that the people who should be making the decisions about what the PCs should do are in fact the players. And so you need to let the players make those decisions and what you need to prep are the toys that you get to control, that you get to use to play with the players. And that's really what the book is all about, is teaching you how to very effectively and efficiently prep and then how to also play with those toys. That's great. That's great. You know, one of the things that, I mean, even, even helpful to me is that you are very clear, uh, just to pull one example out of the book, you're very clear about, you know, thinking about the difference when you are writing a particular notes for a particular encounter area, the difference between are you writing for publication or are you just writing for yourself at home, right? In a home game. And Absolutely. that's something that honestly has like I've I've fallen on the wrong side about that in the past because whereas older, you know, editions of D&D didn't really explicitly say like you do here, here's how you're going to develop your dungeon. They just say, here's an example of a dungeon. And of course, it's in publication mode. Um, and they don't they don't point out that this is more verbose than you would need for yourself. And so I really like the point in, in the book where you've got the example of like, here's what you do for publication and what you're going to see when you get a published adventure. And here's how you're going to use it. But here's all you have to write for yourself. It's going to be three bullet points. <laughs> Right, and, and the, the key, the key, I look, and something I struggle with also because I, I do this as a living, right? I actually publish RPG adventures and source books and so forth. So it's it's real easy for me, even when I'm prepping stuff just from my own personal table, to like fall into my RPG writer habit and over prep the material. And you're wasting time, and in fact, in many ways, oftentimes you're making that material less accessible because like three bullet points is a lot easier to quickly access 
than like a paragraph full of text. And the reason why published adventures are the way they are is that I not only need to communicate the essential information to you, I need to also communicate like my unique creative vision. Um, like the example I like to use is like, if I, if I was prepping a, a dungeon where like the entrance of the dungeon was behind this waterfall and I was keying the first area, um, I might, if I was writing that for publication, I might make a point about mentioning, you know, the stairs are slick with the water vapor from the from the waterfall behind you. There's a coolness in the air. You can see the the iridescent gleam of the water um, on the rocks of the cave around you. But all of those things are, you know, part of my creative vision for that scene. But if I was prepping that for my own table, I would maybe have a bullet point that said rocks slick. And I would know that that would be enough for me because it's enough to remind me of my own creative vision. And then I can trust my own creative instincts at the table and my own memory of what my vision of this place was um, to, to trigger that. It's the difference between like needing to like show someone a photograph from your vacation because they weren't there. And alternatively, just being like, you know, in your own head being like, oh, yeah, the beach. I don't need to, like, explain all the details of that beach. I just say the beach of my vacation, and I know exactly what that was. Yeah. This, this is a really and fascinating say, point. I think it's something, it's something I've, I've struggled with a lot in some of my yeah. own writing. Um, and something I think I've, I've talked about is, is this want or this desire for both kind of this long form of an adventure, because especially when you're writing for someone else, right, whether that's publication or you're, you're writing a module to be run at conventions or what have you, where you have to add all this extra language to so that that the reader, the, the person who's prepping, who's going to run the game, gets your vision, versus like the actual like reference material you want on hand while you're running. And I find myself, I'm curious if you do this, Justin. I find myself like if I'm prepping somebody else's material, I will take their their module and I'll just then write my own notes for at table play that are really condensed and really tight. Uh, I will frequently do that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of dungeons. Uh, like that are 20 page dungeons are written out and I'll sometimes prep like a one page version of them where the map is on the yeah. page and I like, just have a really quick reference. And I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll even include like on that, it'll be like quick, quick reminders of what this was. And here's a page reference as well. So if I'm like, Oh, what, what was yeah. the, why was the rock slick? I can crack open the adventure super quick to that specific so, page and find it very quickly. So I'm curious you on your thoughts on this, book. because I, I, so I've, I've occasionally thought about this idea of like, maybe I should publish a module where I've written out the long form and then in the back couple of pages, here's like your quick reference, right? Here's my notes that I use at table. And I wonder if that would be useful or if the utility is actually enforcing the DM to do that for themselves because it, the it's, notes it's are really about tricky. what's gonna, yeah. It's a little tricky too, because what, what every individual GM considers essential reference is actually a little mm. bit different. And there's a lot of different yeah. ways in which that applies. Um, it's not necessarily a bad idea to do that um, and have it in such a way that it is exactly, at the very least, an example. And some GMs may immediately find like the quick, the quick one-page version a useful reference, if nothing else. The like uh, this is actually something I talk about in terms of when you're doing your own prep as well as a first-time GM, for example. I actually have a section about this in the in the book, actually talking about what I refer to as as the hierarchy of reference. Which is particularly, like, if you imagine coming to a new RPG for the first time, mechanical, mechanical is a good way of thinking about this. But when you come to an RPG for the first time, you don't really, you haven't mastered many of the mechanics yet. And so, for example, if you're writing out the stat block of an enemy, um, you might, let's, let's use D&D 5th edition just for example. But like, uh, you might have an enemy spellcaster who has the magic missile spell. And if you're coming to D&D for the first time, you might have no idea how the magic missile spell works. And so you can either, like, need to look that up at the table or in your cheat sheet, you can have the stat block for the bad guy and also include a description of what magic missile does. Now, eventually, you have a lot of people casting magic missile in your D&D games and you learn how magic missile works. So eventually, you don't have to explain the spell in your notes. You can just write magic missile, for example. And that's an example of sort of the hierarchy of reference. I know that there have been times in my past, like when I was, when I, when I was 12 and played D&D like four times a week, and didn't have six different versions of D&D in my head, there was a point in time where I could just write down <laughs> Goblin, and I would know what the Goblin stat block was, because I'd run so many encounters with Goblins. And that's an extreme level of Goblin hierarchy. But obviously, if I was publishing a reference sheet for somebody else, I wouldn't know where in that hierarchy they are. Are they at the, I can just say, Goblin level? Or are they, are they, are they at the point where they should really be writing down how a magic missile spell works? That's great. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. 
And I'll say, I'll say that that was also a challenge, right? That's all, that's always been a challenge. And in particular, if you look at, uh, Gygax's or Arneson's original notes, right? They generally said goblin, <laughs> they, right? They were at the level where they were goblin. And I mean, even if, even if they didn't remember it perfectly, I mean, whatever they said actually was the rule. Um, and of course we kind of have this long legacy of people taking their mega dungeons, trying to publish them and sending out these titanic sized vessels that inevitably hit an iceberg and sank and never got published. Um, and so that 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 uh, adaptation, I'll call it, from the the notes that the expert GM needs to something that 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 the public um, that that uh, that a larger number of people can use and digest, very tricky, very hard. Absolutely, particularly at the scale of a mega dungeon. And of course, the other difficulty that both Arneson and Gygax were struggling with is that like a mega dungeon structure. As again, I talk about in my book, which comes out next month. Everyone should order a copy. I shill for a living now, um, but <laughs> mega dungeon structure is that a mega dungeon is a is a living place in many ways. Part of the procedure of running a mega dungeon, as opposed to like a normal dungeon, yeah. is that you're anticipating going into the mega dungeon over and over again, and every time you go in, things have shifted, alliances have changed, areas have been restocked, and so for both Arneson and Gygax, Castle Blackmore for Arneson, Castle Greyheart for Gygax, in both cases those were living places. So both of them were confronted with this question of okay, I'm going to publish my mega dungeon. What version of my mega dungeon do I publish? Do I publish it as it exists now? And like now is ever changing if you're still running, running your mega dungeon? Or do I try and go back and recreate the original mega dungeon? But that doesn't really capture what even my players think of as the mega dungeon, because again, the things we think of as like the mega dungeon have evolved over time. So like in Castle Blackmore, for example, Dave Arneson's original mega dungeon, um, there's a thing called the Orkian Way, which is this passageway that goes from like the first level of the dungeon down to like, I think it's like the 15th or the 20th level of the dungeon or something. And in his campaign, that was that was a thing that happened not at the beginning, but halfway through all this, these Orcish yeah. tribes from deep in the earth, like burrowed their way up to the first level of the dungeon. And so you have this very basic question of, do we include the Orkian Way? And when, when Dave Arneson published uh, some of his Blackmore notes through the, the first fantasy campaign through Judges Guild back in the late 70s, the Orkian way is there. On the other hand, when I sat down to run my own version of Castle Blackmore using those notes, I was like, I'm gonna take the Orkian way out because I'm gonna go back to like a little bit before that and let the dungeon live. And maybe, maybe, maybe in my campaign, the Orkian way shows up or maybe it doesn't, maybe something else, most likely something else completely different. Mm -hmm. That's great. I, I, as, as, as someone's just tiny, tiny bit OCD, I, I read that in Final Fantasy, first fantasy campaign, and I'm like, and I had, and I was like, this is incoherent. I don't understand why would you, why would there be a passage for first level characters to just go down and confront enormous hordes of orcs and demons? Um, and that, that, that's the, that's the, you just gave me the key to solving that puzzle, actually, is it, it only showed up later. Great. Yep. Yep. That, that's a hundred percent true. And uh, it's yeah, like so. Like first fantasy campaign is a really interesting, really interesting comparison to like when Guy Gax tried to publish Castle Greyhawk. Is that Dave Arneson with the first fantasy campaign basically took a stack of his Blackmore notes and the maps from the Blackmore dungeon and handed them to judges of guild and said, "Here, publish this." And the book is almost incoherent because some of the notes. <laughs> are from how he was running the dungeon in 78. And some of them were from how he was running the dungeon in 74. And nothing in the book distinguishes between the two. So there's there's all these contradictions. There's the stuff that isn't really fully explained because it was in fact just his notes that he wrote for himself and his notes that he wrote for himself at various points of time, not only in the development of the dungeon, but like the development of the rules he was using to run the dungeon. So uh, you have to really with that text, dig in and even to some extent reconstruct and make your own decisions to get to a playable state. Um, I have a series of articles on, on my website, The Alexandrian, actually looking at how I did that process um, to get to a playable state. Um, by contrast, every time Gygax tried to sit down to write Castle Greyhawk, he tried to write like a 400 page book um, describing every room with full box text and the like. And it, which approach is better? Well, at least in the case of Castle Blackmore versus Castle Greyhawk, we we have Castle Blackmore. Gygax never managed to actually publish his Castle Greyhawk. So, like, which one's better? Maybe the one that actually exists. I don't, you know, it's, it's you know, yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. I, I think in I my want... in my little bit of music days, we had a we had a, a an idiom of real artists ship. Um, if you can, <laughs> getting getting something out is better than getting nothing out. 
if, if I can tie us to back to the actual uh, discussion topic here, which I think we've, we've not managed to quite circle in <laughs> on yet, but I think it ties in very nicely to some of this idea, Justin, that you're talking about in terms of like the hierarchy of notes. Because when you are talking about taking an existing published material and adapting it from one system to another, there's an argument, right, that a, a higher level of abstraction is better, right? If, if the text just says goblin, then I can look in whatever source book I'm running, whether it's D&D or Osric or, you know, something totally different. And I just, I can adapt that and say, well, what's a goblin like in this game? Versus I think when the scenario includes a lot of details that are specifically tied to a, a system, it, it maybe gets more daunting to the end user of like, well, how do I adapt this? It's so it's clearly written for the system. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, my, I mean, my general approach, you're talking about adapting like specific mechanical content from one system to another, whether that's a goblin stat block or, or whatever the case may be, or a spell, for example, is I tend to, whether in the source material or not, I tend to boil it back to the concept and then just build fresh mechanics in the new system. Um, now, the other the other thing you may end up with, too, is there may be a situation where you're talking about two different systems that both have stat blocks for goblins. And um, in that case, you can just, in some cases, just take the goblin stat blocks from one and use them, right? Whatever system you're using, just use the goblin stat blocks. And the only thing you have to kind of watch out for with that is maybe in one system, goblins are, in fact, like super powerful bad guys. And in the other system, they're weak little mook pushovers, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean you can't still do that approach. You just need to be conscious of, like, I'll do all that work and then be like, okay, now, like, for example, using D&D as an example again, what is the level of this adventure? Uh, an actual interesting published example of this, which didn't really adapt per se, is the original G-series modules, the giant series of modules from AD&D. Mm -hmm. Because in first edition AD&D, giants had certain stat blocks. And then when they did the second edition of AD&D, they updated the giant stat blocks in the monster manual, uh, and they were more they were much more difficult foes. And then they just kept publishing the G modules in various forms, but didn't, never updated like the number of giants, but also never updated like the recommended level on the cover of the adventure. So like adventures that were originally published to be, you know, pretty, pretty standard adventure fare. If you played them under second edition AD&D with second edition AD&D giant stats, um, they would be significantly more difficult adventures, quite deadly adventures in some cases. And that's just a really simple, I mean, even though AD&D and AD&D second edition are like this far apart mechanically, um, even that simple shift did have radical differences in terms of the balance and even the experience of the adventure as a result. What great example! So I I worked directly on that in the in the in the uh, in the third edition era. Um, they had a license specific. Watsi had a license specifically for conversion documents for classic adventures, and so I've got. I think they'd show up on internet searches. I've got my name on the the third edition conversion documents for the G one two three series to third edition, and I I absolutely ran into that problem of in from first to second edition, they'd, they'd inflated the hit dice by about 50%. And then mm -hmm. they compounded it because in third edition, all monsters had constitution bonuses on top of their, their hit dice. They gave giants, you know, reasonably enormous constitutions and therefore basically doubled the hit points on top of the second edition increase that you're talking about. So basically giants as of third edition had had three times, had, were three times more powerful than they started out in. And I had to have this like commentary at the beginning of like, you need like much higher level characters um, if you're gonna run this uh, with, the, with the numbers involved. And it was like kind of a real dilemma. I, I, it's interesting. I didn't realize that you were the one who had written those conversion notes because I, one of the reasons I became aware of the situation was I used third edition conversion notes to run the G module. And I was like, something's wrong. So, full circle on that one. There might, there might be multiple versions, but mine has a specific paragraph yeah. at the start of like the challenge rating is much higher than you expected. And you're going to need like uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's, 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 why, that's where I originally got that example okay. from and began thinking okay. about those okay. issues of your note. So. <laughs> so that's a small world. That's crazy. You know, I, okay. So, and the other thing that I did is I briefly worked with um, Rob Kuntz in that same kind of era uh, for a conversion to third edition of his classic Garden of the Plant Master adventure. And, uh, you know, you know, R Rob was, was certainly not really happy to embrace 
third edition rules. And to him, it seemed much more burdensome. It, it seemed much more formalized and much more burdensome. And he absolutely didn't want to, you know, get into the nitty gritty of skill points or anything like that. So I was kind of taking on that task, which was in my wheelhouse, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, things that I think about uh, for the other things that were problematic were like classic uh, dungeon traps, right, that were unique. Uh, and the first thing I think of is traps that remove a limb. Right. And there were quite a few there were quite a few things in early D&D of like stick your hand in this hole and your hand gets chopped off if you don't do the right thing. And you see that in some classic adventures. I think there's one of those in like in Rap and Athic. Uh, Grimtooth's traps have a whole lot of that. And then what do you what do you what do you do if you have like a highlight like that and you move to a system that just doesn't expect to handle that ever? You keep you change it. That's a great question. I mean, those are those are always tough ones, and it does it does kind of elucidate why like a regeneration spell existed in in the older editions, right? Because there was a method, and that's the biggest thing I would watch out for. That's it actually is a good pitfall to watch out for. Is um, is there a consequence in or an expectation in in this module, in this material, in this setting that I'm adapting from that there will be a solution to a problem that doesn't exist in my new version? Um, like for example, if 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 in the game you're taking from the game has a way to regrow limbs, maybe trivially, maybe it's less important that like limbs get lost all the time. Uh, but if you're transitioning that scenario to a game where you can't trivially replace lost limbs, that's a much more devastating. Excuse me. It's a much more devastating um, consequence. Uh, so it's also something you kind of look out for is to make sure that the um, the the problems still have the solutions that they did in the original material. That's, you have that's a, an you interesting have point. I will, yeah, were you, were okay. you about to dive into our actual example of uh, adapting content? Well, I wanted to say that, so So Justin, what highlights in his book, what he just said, he says, here's a possible hook into adventure of someone saying, I need this ring of regeneration because my daughter lost her leg in a terrible accident. So, so it seems like a pretty good adventure hook. Wouldn't you agree, Paul? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, unless unless that, that healing is trivially obtained in a di totally different way. But you, you've actually <laughs> used that yourself for like a whole campaign arc, I think, in your, in your I game. I did, right? though, I, admittedly, it was not uh, intentional, right? Uh, it happened simply because I was running old school D&D, which does not have uh, any regenerative spells or any mad... You've got the ring of regeneration, basically, that's it. And mm -hmm. um, the players... I had a critical hit system that was a house rule that I was using, and players were losing limbs left and right, literally. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it just became it just became a, a, a naturally evolving quest line for them of like we need to figure out how to solve this problem. And yeah, they spent a lot of time and I had to invent a lot of content for limb restoration, which just didn't exist in the system. Uh, Dan, I was gonna get at, you know, so we have we have a kind of this practical example that you and I have been tossing around for this topic, which is um, Dan and I write uh, or uh, Dan and I have done a couple of episodes of what we call the Dungeon Design Dash, where we spend an episode just making a making a dungeon in, in an hour, which we've done a few times, and then eventually nice it up into a into a decent PDF and release it for free to all our patrons. We have a, a new one coming out uh, called Creeping Doom of the Pumpkin King, which is a nice kind of spooky theme to it uh, that should be coming out to our patrons pretty soon. And the funny thing about this is um, it is a, is, an, is a wilderness adventure, and it has a lot of kind of Halloween and fall themes to it. Um, and I've actually run this using um, my um, my system that's that's in Kickstarter right now called Fearful Ends, which which is a horror RPG. And that's that's a pretty big shift from a, a module that was originally written for D and D, right? And yeah, we can talk about things like stat block switching and like yeah, you can. That's usually my starting place, I guess, of, of adapting content from one system to another. So, oh, well, these stats don't make sense. Let me rip them out and replace them with stats that do make sense. But also, I'll point out in this case, you have like a complete switch in like the overall theme or, or tone of the game, where in D&D, I expect my players are going to confront the horrible creeping doom and overcome it and be heroes and save the day. And in Fearful Ends, I expect them to die horribly trying to do that. Right? <laughs> and to fail miserably. Uh, have, you, have you ever dealt, Justin, with, with that kind of level of like just absolute tonal shift between, between uh, systems? 
Absolutely. And and oftentimes it's it's partly about system and partly about just genre expectations and kind of the way the players expect to go into um into into a situation, mm. into a into a scenario. Um and I, the, the the biggest cases where I see this mostly crop up is mostly is mostly D D because we have such a collective understanding about like the way D D is like meant to be played, the expectations of what uh, of what you do in that game. Um that that uh, and, and one of the reasons this is also the rest of the industry is often reacting against D D. So like Fearful Lens, for example, um, and other horror games are reacting to the heroic pulp fantasy of D&D. And so trying to cross that specific divide can actually be one of the largest divides to cross. Um, the other thing you really fight when you're trying to do horror in D&D in particular is that um, particularly like the modern play culture of D&D is very much built around the expectation that the dungeon master is balancing every fight so that the players can mm. beat it. And beat it, you know, beat it without really being at risk is is the general assumption of a D and D fight, like at risk of death specifically, or, or at least the risk of everybody dying, um, is, is the general expectation in in D and D. And there's a lot of consequences to that, um, and a lot of that a lot of that also flows out of actually prepping linear plots because if you are in fact prepping these linear plots in D and D, you can either you know you kind of have a responsibility to like prep the fights that everyone is expecting that everybody everybody can deal with um, when, you, when you're prepping plots in a system where the expectation is that you fight everything that you see, um, for better or for worse. Um, and so one of the biggest tricks with adapting, adapting material, adapting adventures like the one you're describing from Fearful Ends is just figuring out, is there a way to communicate to the players that this scenario needs a different approach to it? And... And in some cases, the answer is no, I can't. So I need to figure out a different way to play it. And, and if that's the case, that you can't, you can't get the genre expectations of the original adventure into the new, the new setting, the new system that you're using, then you need to figure out, you know, you have this adventure, you have this content that has a bunch of interesting toys in it that presumably you think will be fun in the new system. What you need to figure out is, how how are those toys used to best effect in the new system? And that for me would probably begin getting back to kind of some of the fundamental tools I'm looking to adapt material either from other mediums or from other adventures is I look back at sort of my core tool set of, of scenario structures and I try to figure out what is the best scenario structure for the particular set of toys that I'm imagining being relevant to the current situation. And I'm gonna try and figure out how to how to either use or create a scenario structure that tells me what to prep and how to use it. Nice, nice. Hmm. Paul, when you when you converted that specific thing, what was the what was it from from D and D to Fearful Ends? What was like the biggest highlight of like something that changed a lot? Oh, that's a for, good question. For a um, creeping pumpkin can adventure. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, um, you know, I would say that the, the biggest thing that changed really is the, the let, me, let me start with this, the, the way we generally, the way Dan, you and I write not these modules, not that I have to remind you, but for the sake of our viewers, <laughs> is that they tend, you know, they tend to be much more, you know, location-based rather than plot-based, right? We have, we have a, right. a, a world with locations and things that are going on, and there, there are certainly, NPCs that have goals that are in there, um, and so and so like they're clearly set up, but without being um, they're set up for the players to interact with, but not without dictating an outcome. And I think that's important, and I think that helps a lot in terms of finding content that is good for adapting, especially across tone. Right? Is is if the the written material doesn't assume specific outcomes, that helps a lot. So in the in the creeping doom of the pumpkin king, there is of course the pumpkin king who resides in a courtroom, uh, who is really like a, a, a terrible creature that possibly you want to kill or or avoid or whatever. Uh, when I adapted the game over to Fearful Ends, uh, frankly, my players just absolutely noped right out of ever going near the pumpkin king. They just they just <laughs> were not interested. They were like, "That's bad news. That we're not going to go in his castle. We're not going to go anywhere near that." And really, the, the, the thrust of their um, 
their adventure, right? Their main primary goal that they formed for themselves was, was basically, we need to get the hell out of here. How do we leave this area, right? How can we escape, right? Rather than what I think, what would be the, the, the thrust, the, the probable goal, if I was gonna run this in D&D is, how do we stop this pumpkin king from making everyone's life miserable? How do we overcome it? Nice. Um, but again, I don't think I really had, that's, that's something that came organically through play and not really something that I, I had to deal with ahead of time in terms of adapting the content. But I think it is a, a good way of highlighting right, that, that, that the content I believe that's best for adaptation is this content that isn't very plot heavy and isn't going to like try to dictate an outcome because that's, that's where you're gonna get in trouble, I think. Got it, got it, interesting. Do you, do you agree with that, Justin? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and I think in general, like, I mean, once you begin, once you get away from prepping plots, prepping these preconceived outcomes, prepping these preconceived actions mm -hmm. that the PCs are supposed to take, um, you know, you can run the same adventure over and over again, and it will be different every time, which is just fantastic. And there'll be different reasons why it's different every time. Random chance, ideas the players have, a particular mix of personalities. Like, there's all kinds of, like, even within, like, just D&D, &D, there's Leroy Jenkins and there's, you know, Aragorn, right? Like, there's a huge range of ways to approach approach D, D. So you get different players, you get different situations, you get different characters, um, and you end up with radically different outcomes. I've done I've done a lot of scenario designs over the year, taking them to conventions and run them for six or seven or eight groups in the course of three or four days. And it's a lot more fun to run scenarios where you where you're just playing with the players and so every time you run it is a new experience than it is when you're trying to run some pre written plot. And so you're just trying to force eight groups down the same channel over and over mm -hmm. again. Yeah, oh, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's like the real joy of DMing for me is is watching how different groups interact with the same content and how they how radically differently they might change it, and, and frankly, being forced on my on my own end to possibly improvise because oh my gosh, they did something totally unexpected. Is that is that factor something that's covered in your book about dealing with players jumping track and going out into left field? Yeah, absolutely, and like um, so one one of the things I really struggled with with the book actually was figuring out. Um, my authorial voice for it because a lot of like my content at the alexandrian for example is aimed at advanced game masters experienced game that. masters yep. so i'll say i'll say things at the website like hey we've all been there before your players missed the clue now what do you do and i quickly realized writing a book for you know uh for first-time gms or at least some of the audience will be first-time gms is that um, writing that is of course nonsense we've all been there before no i haven't that's why i'm here um so <laughs> So I had to kind of find find the right authorial voice. And what I kind of realized was that what I wanted to do was not spend a lot of time talking about all the things they shouldn't do at the table. I want to just really focus mm -hmm. on the things that they should be doing. And if you do these things, if you follow, you know, I've got, like I say, dungeons and mysteries and raids and heists and urban adventures and hex crawls and point crawls and all kinds of cool adventures. If you just follow this advice and do this, then like hopefully you'll never need to be told don't railroad your players because you'll be too busy actually playing with your players. Um, but to get back to your, your question about like, what do you do when you, when your players go, you know, off the tracks? Well, it helps if you don't have tracks in the first place, obviously. But yep. the other thing I found is that, again, I come back to these scenario structures, which is that if you, if you know, if you know how adventures work, it becomes a lot easier to improvise in response to the players. A classic example of this for me is, uh, years ago when I figured out how to run a raid, a really effective raid scenario. Um, it became really easy to respond to unexpected um, player goals at the table. Suddenly they're like, oh, I want to go get a ring of regeneration or um, or a magical nightstick, or I want to go find you know this thing, whatever the thing may be, whether it's a person, place, or whatever. Um, you can just take whatever that is, put it in the middle of a raid, which just means there's a bunch of bad guys trying to stop you from getting to it, and you've got an adventure. And then when they finally get to the thing, whether it's a map or a magic item or whatever, you're probably at the end of the session anyway, so now I can prep for next week. Um, and one specific thing I found particularly useful is this. So there's scenario structures like how you run a mystery, for example. And then I do take that one step further, which is um, what I've eventually come to think of as adventure recipes, which are very specific, um, very specific structure, very specific ways of building an adventure within that structure. A well-known example of this is the, um, is the five-room dungeon. So like there's lots and lots of different dungeons out there, but the five room dungeon is a specific recipe that you can pour specific content into and get an adventure that you know is going to work. And there's a whole bunch of these recipes in uh, So You Want to Be a Game Master. There's one called a five plus five dungeon. Um, there's a five node mystery. There's five by five campaign. Um, 
So there's all these adventure recipes. And what, what makes those special is that you don't have to try and figure out how to make all the pieces fit together. Um, you can just put content into them. Another way I kind of describe it is like, if you have like, um, if you have a, like a puzzle, like a, like a boxed puzzle, and you imagine that like you have like four or five puzzle pieces that are all just white, uh, and you have those put together, you can very quickly sketch something on them and then hand the puzzle pieces to the players. And you know the puzzle's going to go together because the puzzle pieces are puzzle pieces, right? And that's what the recipe does for you, is it's like, if you, if you have pieces and you put them together like this, you know it will work at the table, and then you're free to like draw whatever you want to on those pieces. Um, so those are kind of two different ways of thinking about it. But that's a really good way of dealing with players who do something completely unexpected, is you're like, let me just grab the most appropriate recipe, or yeah. five things to it, and uh, away we go. And, and if you have those recipes, then I found like, you know, even if you need to be like, let's take a 10 minute break, you can usually get the next chunk of adventure up and running um, with, with very little experience if you have the right tools to do it. Awesome. I, I want to go back to, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, this notion of like finding your voice and how, how you address your audience in this book and how that differs from your blog. Because, um, you know, I, I read through some of the book, certainly not all of it, because this is a, this is a good sized book, uh, viewers. This is like well over 500 pages. I'm, I'm expecting, uh, it, it takes a good chunk of shelf space when it's, when it's actually in physical print. Um, and, uh, you know, with a title like, so you want to be a, a game master, I was, I was looking at this and thinking, how is this going to fit our, our audience here? who generally tend to be fairly experienced gamers. And in the beginning of the book, I definitely was getting the sense of like, oh, wow, this is really for like people who have no experience whatsoever. But the more I read it, the more I was realizing, like, like I got up to the section on mysteries and your three clue rule, um, which is just fantastic. And I was like, this is this is exact. This is describing exactly how I often set up my scenarios for fearful ends. And I, I found myself, you know, just pouring through that whole section. So I just want to, you know, bring that up to my, to our viewers that, like, yeah, there is absolutely something for everyone in this book, yeah. um, right? For whether whether you've never GM before or you've GM'd a million times. Uh, there's there's really a breadth, I think, of advice here for, for GMs. There are many different experience levels. Agreed. Uh, well, thank you for yeah. saying that because that is that is actually something very deliberate in the book as well. So, like yeah. the beginning of the book is very much aimed at at people who like. So, the very beginning of the book is like a like a five or six page introduction that is aimed at people who have never heard of a role playing game before. They're walking through a Barnes and Noble, they find this book, and they're like, "This looks cool," and I need to explain to them what the heck this is to begin with. See, like those yeah. first five pages, everyone who's listening to this podcast have suddenly read the equivalent of those five pages in half a dozen role-playing games. Most likely. <laughs> you, know, you got the example of play and all of that. Um, then the next section is I'm like, okay, great. So you want to GM for the first time, whether you've never played a role-playing game before or if you're just, you've played before, but you want to GM for the first time. Look, we're going to start with dungeons because I actually believe for first-time GMs, dungeons are great because every room is firewalled. So you don't have to think about the whole adventure in a basic dungeon. You just have to think about the one room. So let's focus on that. Now, the key thing is that there's only two skills you need to run your first dungeon, um, which is that you need to know how to make a ruling. Like the players say they want to do something. How do you respond to that? Which is the basic skill of all role-playing games. And the second thing you need to know is how to run a room. So in about 20 pages or so, we go through those two skills. Um, and then I say, great, and here's your first adventure. Go and run your first adventure. You have everything you need to know. And I, you know, I tell people, go run it, then come back, because you need to get, the only way to become a GM is to actually go to the table and run a game, right? So that's kind of the beginning of the book. And like you say, for most people watching this with your audience, with my audience, they're probably gonna be like, okay, yeah, I know how to run a dungeon, Justin. But really, we're only like a tenth of the way through because then what I do is, okay, we're going to open this up. We're going to talk. Now that you've run your first adventure, we'll start by talking about, you know, how to run advanced dungeons, um, how to make bigger dungeons, how mega dungeons work, and how they differ from basic dungeons. We're going to talk about things like adversary rosters and random encounters and a lot of beginning to get more advanced techniques in terms of how to make a dynamic dungeon, how to bring your dungeon to life. And then once we've done that, um, then I say, great, now at this point, you can keep reading the book all the way through, or you can choose a type of adventure and you can begin skipping around. Here's a guide to all the different page numbers where you can learn about mysteries and node-based campaigns and raids and heists and urban adventures and hex crawls and point crawls. And this is the point where I think a, a lot of people who've been DMing for a little while, or even people who've been DMing for years, will begin getting material that is useful for them. And that's, that's the bulk of the book. Yeah as we begin diving into all these different ways of making adventures. 
And um, there's a lot of stuff in the book that is completely new. Like fans of the Alexandrian, for example, will probably be familiar with the three clue rule that's been along, around for a while. This is a completely new version of the three clue rule in terms of like it's being integrated into a whole system of, of GMing. The other thing also happens at this sort of place is like, we talked earlier about the fact that like the beginning of the book really kind of assumes that you're gonna be doing D&D fifth edition because you know what are the odds that someone coming to it? Um, are going to be doing D&D 5th edition. But really, once we get out of the dungeon, um, one thing I do is I start talking about GMs rather than DMs, and I begin bringing in more examples from other role-playing games as well. So it's not really just a book about D&D 5th edition either. So uh, I've been rambling for a bit, but really it's about, like, there's a lot of material in there for people who aren't first-time GMs as well, because I really want to just not have, like, your first couple sessions. This is a book that I think for first-time GMs will be their first 50, 60, 70 adventures they'll continue to find new and useful stuff in there. And that also means there'll be new and useful stuff for uh, for, for existing longtime GMs as well. And then also, like, I really hope that some of the people, even those who are coming to the book for D&D 5th edition, will um, take the opportunity to do some of the stuff in the book to, like, explore other games out there as well. There's mm -hmm. lots of awesome games, obviously. I'm glad you guys brought that up because it it is a clever, cleverly structured book and, and a little bit unique in in tone in this way of how you ramp up from the most basic fundamentals on the first couple pages to very advanced topics by the end. And it kind of, I mean, it kind of has the, gives me the feel of like a continuously variable transmission about like where, wherever you are in your DMing, you're going to, there's a particular page that's exactly right, right for something that's useful. That's going to improve your game today. And I don't know a lot of books that do that kind of, you know, thoughtful ramping up, frankly, like that. I, again, it's great to hear because that is, in fact, exactly what I was aiming for with the book: is to is to onboard people and then give them the tools to explore to whatever to whatever skill level that they're currently comfortable at, and also the types of topics that they want to explore as well. I mean, I've talked a lot about like the first half of the book, which is this pillar of scene of scene structures and campaign structures, um, and how to how to do those. Uh, but the back half of the book is an extra credit section, which we haven't even really touched on yet. There's a whole bunch of topics back there for things like running an open table, how to build a rumor table. Uh, creating your campaign, creating your world, um, your supporting cast of NPCs, bunch of tips for creating and running those at the table, what to do if your PCs split up and go to, you know, if they split the party, what, what do you do then? So there's a whole bunch of different topics like that in the back that I also offer up as a menu that basically like, and any time like this type of, these top, the, the idea is that these topics apply whether you're running mysteries or wilderness exploration, whatever the case may be, these topics, feel free to drop them in whenever you're ready to add this extra spice uh, to your campaign, to your, to your table. Nice. You get into enough detail, you have like some specific sheets. You have some specific sheets for the GM to run a particular type of adventure that kind of, to me, are, remind me of the, the DM's logs that were a product that the, the makers of D&D sold at one point back in the 70s. Were those, were those, were those ideas... Um, they're adapted from those old DMs logs, or were they with a completely unique idea that you that you that um, that came out of a different place? That's a great question. Uh, I can't I can't say that I was uninfluenced by those because those were certainly products I was familiar with, particularly when I was a young kid in the early '90s, uh, coming into coming into all this. Um, but the the sort of root of it was uh, about a decade ago. I was running hex crawl campaigns for the first time. I guess a little bit more than a decade now. It's twenty twenty three somehow. Um, but so playing hex crawl campaigns for the first time, and I was you know there's the procedure for how the hex crawl works and information that I need to track about like what hex are they in, um, how far have they gone today, when are random encounters happening, just basic stuff. And you know, I was keeping those notes in a notepad and trying to keep track of them. And I quickly realized as I was working on that, I was like, oh, you know. If I have like a structure for how I put this information on the page, it's easier for me to keep track of it all and make sure I'm doing the things um, and, and know where I need to find the information. And so eventually for my own personal use, I ended up designing one of the worksheets from the book, um, which is the, the hex tracking one uh, for, player, for GMs who are running a hex crawl wilderness campaign. Um, and I found that very useful. I've refined it a number of times over the years. Um, and then as I was doing this book and developing uh, a specific dungeon procedure, um, for DMs to follow, I realized that we could also have a, a worksheet like that. So those very much for me came out of just what I needed at the table as a practical tool, which is also, I'm sure, where those early DMs workbooks also came from. And I think it's also yeah. like we talk about like the old school and the old school having these procedures of play. Like if you go back to 1974 D&D, &D, like you were talking about, 
Gygax and Arneson lay out a very specific do this, do this, do this in the dungeon, and now you're running a game. You see the same thing in like John Harper's Blades in the Dark, where he's like, do this, do this, do this, and now you're you know you're running a heist. Um, and so when you have those specific procedures or structures of play, you can have tools like that. Those those tools like those worksheets, for example. Um, tools like um, uh, procedural generation tables that randomly generate content to help you if your players go off the tracks, for example. Um, and, and it's a lot easier to have those tools when there's a specific procedure. Um, and when, as opposed to when you're just telling a GM, like, go prep, if you go prep a plot, it's more difficult to give GMs, like, practical tools that they can use um, as part of play, as part of their prep. Fascinating, fascinating. Let me, so this might be the, the last major thing I get, to, I get to ask here. So I was thinking here with a little bit of work that I've, that I've done mostly between different versions of D&D in the past, is that you have, you know, you have some games like um, fifth edition D&D, which is kind of the, 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 the base state for, for your book here, Justin, uh, which to my old school sensibilities is kind of um, heavyweight, I guess, heavyweight mechanically. And then you have other game systems um, that are narrative or they're more lightweight, like um, Paul's Fearful Ends is very thoughtful, has great rules for both, you know, physical and mental uh, combat issues. Uh, but generally speaking, is a little bit, you know, lighter and easier for the, for the DM to just remember stuff, frankly. Is it easier to convert between a lightweight mechanical game system to heavyweight or vice versa? I mean, maybe the, maybe the heavyweight gives you more formal structures to use and you're more at sea with the light. Which which direction is it easier to, to adapt things in? That's a great question. I think I think as long as you're like, so I think I think it's time to think it depends on uh, personality. Uh, some people, if they have a bunch of detail, are really uncomfortable um, eschewing that detail, letting that detail go. And if you give if you give people like that, like a big stat block full of like a lot of specific stuff, and you say, hey, adapt this to a simpler system, they'll try to somehow retain all of the nitty gritty details. Um, and that makes that very difficult to go in that direction. And it's gonna be much easier for those people to go the opposite direction where they have a few broad details and now they can fill in all the details that like, let's say GURPS, that GURPS expects you to have in a stat block. Um, and uh, but other people are perfectly happy just like taking taking some set of mechanics where like a system has like eight different science skills and being like, well, this character has like a bunch of different science skills. And over here in this other system that has one science skill, I'll just say that, you know, averages out to a seven or whatever. Uh, and so if you can do that, then I find actually going from a heavier system to a simpler system can be easy because you've got more stuff to look at and be like, this is the essential stuff. And I'll just represent that um, over here. Um, like a really good example of, of this in my personal experience is like the cipher system that Monty Cook Games uses. So I'm adapting stuff into Numenera, which is a game system. Like, and they, we talk about like things where it gets really difficult to adapt stuff. Then there's other settings where it's really easy. Like Numenera takes place a billion years in the future and some of it's science fantasy and some of it's weird transhumanism. So like whatever you, whatever you wanna pull for a source, you can generally kind of justify it there. So it's really easy to pull stuff in. And what Numenera does is that, um, it's stat blocks. You can you can boil any stat block down to just a single number, which is the level of the creature. But then if you want to, you can have like additional abilities that you can just tack on to them, which makes it really easy to adapt stuff into the system because you can look at any more complicated set of stat blocks, which is basically any stat block, and say, oh, well, this looks like about a level six in Numenera. And which of these 20 abilities do I think is actually essential to the creature Mechanically, and maybe it's all 20. That's one of the great things about Numenera is you can actually boil it down to any level of grit that you want by just adding more details. Um, so you can say, well, what, what these skills or abilities are essential or just pick one thing and drop it in. So it's actually, for me, like I learned a lot about adapting material, adapting material into the Cypher system because you can dial in how much detail you want to cross that barrier with. Clever, clever. I'll say I haven't used that a lot. You know, at the, at the start of first fantasy campaign, um, you know, there's actually the, the, the I think it's almost the first page. Um, you know, Arneson has this point about he has a whole system for uh, limb locations for hits and critical hits and things like that. And it's just one sentence, but he says um, we would only use that for like one-on-one -on -one fights. 
right? We'd use this level of de detail for one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. fights. And then for like party level fights, we'd do something else. And then if there was like large mass comp, you know, large masses on both sides, we just revert to chainmail wargaming. And um, yeah, I remember that Doug Niles has a, a similar kind of dial in the detail in his um, in some of his war games like Battle System or Star Frontiers Nighthawks. And I've always, it's, sometimes it's hard to get the statistics right on, on what's happening there, but I have always thought that that was a really clever to explicitly say, we can dial in different levels of detail depending on the action that you like is, 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 a, is a, a smart um, uh, tool to have in the toolbox. 100%, yeah. That's nice. That's very nice. We are just about out of time here. Uh, so I just want to... <laughs> you were right, Dan. That is the last the last crunchy uh, question you're going to get in. Uh, so I just, I just wanted to ask everybody, uh, does anybody have any, any final thoughts about uh, adapting content? Or Justin, is there anything about so you want to be a game master you feel like we didn't hit on that you really want to get out to our audience? I think the only thing I haven't mentioned about So You Want to Be a Game Master is that it comes out November 21st, and you can pre-order it either at your local bookstore um, or local game shops as well, in, in at least in North America. AT Distribution has recently confirmed they're picking it up, so your local game store can also get copies. Great. Fantastic. And I'll point out that we have links to, uh, in the description on uh, YouTube to this show here. We have a link to Justin Alexander's site with links where you can pre-order So You Want to Be a Game Master, and we also have a link to Paul's currently running Kickstarter for Feel Friends. And we would love people to uh, pre-order Justin's book and please join Paul's Kickstarter because in my in my experience, uh, having uh, uh, not having participated in making them, but just being a, a player that's that's used them, they're both great. You should you should get both. Excellent. And I'll Excellent. second the yeah, recommendation uh, for Feel Friends too. Oh, I'm looking forward so much. to hopping in there. I, and 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 I'll and I'll point out like really for me um, looking through the the preview copy of uh, so you want to be a GM and thinking about fearful ends I jumped immediately to section two on on mysteries and holy cow there's a lot of good stuff there that's very applicable so yeah I think uh, the two great tastes that taste great together like Dan said get them both <laughs> I'm it's looking like forward to seeing the by the company thing so yeah <laughs> great that'll, that'll be out soon. Um, great. Uh, viewers, if you have uh, any any thoughts about adapting content, any further questions, stuff that we didn't cover, uh, please leave some questions for us here in the comment section of our YouTube video. Uh, we'd be happy to look those over, get back to you, and maybe even uh, roll those into a topic for a new show down the road. Definitely. And remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us. Uh, we're on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, and TikTok. We have the handle Wandering Dems and all those sites. So look for us there, and you'll get updates for upcoming shows and other great guests, like the next time we have Justin Alexander on. If you prefer to listen to the show... Yeah, yeah, we'd love to, love it. Um, if you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can get those podcasts on our website at wanderingdms.com. You can also find them through various podcast carriers, such as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you're listening to this show right now on one of those third-party sites and it offers the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of that site find us. And we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, uh, every week we have to thank our patrons who support the show here at Wandering DMs. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs and you'll see our couple different tiers. And just like Paul said at the top of the show, we have our uh, live after chat uh, by video on our Discord server. Uh, in about 10 minutes, we'll have it uh, for more uh, thoughts about adapting content or uh, Justin's work at the Alexandrian or all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so uh, let me see what's coming up uh, in the future on the, the show. Uh, next week, we are planning to have Mr. Matt Finch, uh, who, of course, is the author of uh, Swords and Wizardry, uh, a lot of great products like that. Uh, Matt currently has a Kickstarter himself running for, I believe it's the Fantasy Adventure Builder product, I believe, that is compatible with his um, his prior Tome of Adventure design, actually. So um, we are looking forward to touching base with Matt, who is one of our great guests in the past, and um, how uh, possibly, and, with the, and we'll be talking about like things that remove, that maybe you don't want to be handling the dice at your table all the time, and how can you make your game a little bit more efficient that way with um, uh, Matt's current product or some some ideas that we have for the Wandering Dams. So we hope people will join uh, folks for that. But again, Justin, thank you so much for joining us this Sunday. I hope all of our viewers go out and uh, pre-order your book and uh, join Paul's patron. I think they're a great combination together. 
I think they're honestly a really, well, they're, they're a, your guys' advice worked really great together. So people should, should put them together and, and run a game with the two products together, in my opinion. We'll have to arm wrestle over who's chocolate and who's peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Excellent. We are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.